When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't believe in objectivity as something that happens in journalism. I think that we always have some kind of subjectivity. And so I wanted to always let readers know who I'm referencing and if I have a relationship to them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to reject the idea that that in any way denigrates the quality of the work. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's always awesome to talk to you. But I think I recognize the dulcet tones we heard at the top of the show. Who do they belong to? Yes, we heard the dulcet tones of journalist, professor, theorist, and all-around mensch, Stephen Thrasher. Ah, yes. I thought it was him. And I should note here that Stephen is someone I've known and liked very much for several years. We actually met in 2014 at the White House. Oh, ooh, can you hear that place being dropped? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm amazing. Um, yeah, although I have to admit it was a building tour that happened during a convening of queer journalists. We weren't there to meet officials or interview anyone. So... You know, I went to the White House once in high mm -hmm. school to be part of a group of carol singers. They had all these high school choruses singing oh carols God. in different rooms of the White House because they do, you know, Christmas tours and stuff like that. Yeah, but was Stephen Thrasher there with you? I don't he was think not. so. He so, was not. So yeah. you have the better story. Yeah, you have the better exactly, story. Sorry, exactly. sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, Stephen, also one of the all-time great users of Twitter. All value, no bullshit, just a superstar on Twitter. But why did you want to speak with him for working? Well, Stephen is the author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. And mm. um, I actually first got to know Stephen a little bit when uh, The World Only Spins Forward came out. Uh -huh. We were on a panel together and we sort of became correspondents during that. And, you know, he's one of the people who's really connecting the dots between the AIDS crisis and the other kinds of pandemic crises that we face mm -hmm. today in a really powerful way. There's kind of a, a circle of people who are doing that. Um, Peter Staley, Greg Gonzalez, Sarah Schulman, uh, you know, who are all in ACT UP together, people like that. But Stephen's book, you know, The Viral Underclass, it really weaves a lot of disparate things going on in America into this concept of the viral underclass in a really powerful way. I am absolutely sure of that. Uh, and I am very excited to hear this interview. But I believe that you have an extra segment that is exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Well, I asked Stephen about his career journey. You know, he started out studying screenwriting and he's now a journalist, author, teacher, activist, you know, focusing on science and medicine and inequality. So how did he get here from there? You know, what, yeah, what, yeah. what brings him from one place to another? And it's a really fascinating story, I think. Yeah, I bet. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that at the end of the episode. 
And if you aren't, it's really, really, really easy to join. Slate Plus members get to hear extra segments like that one on this show and others, such as The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's Podcast of the Year, Slow Burn. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isis' conversation with Stephen Thrasher. Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm working to talk about your process. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to be here with you, Isaac. So your new book is The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. For our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't, you know, picked it up at their local indie bookstore and read the back (laughs) of it to get a sense of it, can you just describe the book and its project? Uh, Certainly. So The Viral Underclass is a book that, in a way, I started writing about eight years ago, writing about the criminalization of HIV and AIDS, um, how it affected a young man named Michael Johnson. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to turn this into a book after having reported on it for six years and written my dissertation uh, based on it when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And so what I ended up doing was writing about the ways that um, certain people become very affected by very different viruses. I started seeing that people who are being affected with COVID-19 was overlapping a lot with people who were affected by HIV and AIDS. And it struck me as very strange because they were very, very different viruses that came into contact with people in different ways, but they're affecting the same kinds of populations. And so the book is a way that I write about 12 different social vectors that explain why these different kinds of viruses are affecting the same populations. And the vectors are capitalism, ableism, racism, different kinds of isms that uh, socially affect people but create very different material results. And I tell it through the stories of different people with each vector. Mm. And, and was there like a chunk of the, I mean, I know that, that there was a dissertation that existed. Uh, was there a chunk of the book that kind of existed and then you had to throw it out or rejigger it when the COVID-19 pandemic hit? Or, or like, what did it look like at that point? When COVID was starting to hit, I had traveled to uh, Greece while I was writing my dissertation uh, on, a, on a fellowship and was just going, hopefully, to get away from the United States for a little while while I was working on these things and not think about things like police violence. When a young man was kicked to death by a mob by eight people, four of them were police, and it turned out that he was one of the most prominent HIV activists in the country. Oh, wow. And so I had started, his name was Zach Kostopoulos, and so I had returned to try to write uh, research more about him. Um, I didn't know if that was going to be a standalone project or what exactly was going to happen with that. And I also was trying to figure out if my project about Michael Johnson was going to become a standalone project about his story or if it was going to be something about the history of AIDS. And I was in Athens when the first uh, case of COVID was diagnosed there. And then I returned to the United States. And then, of course, COVID took over the whole world. And so I didn't know. I, I'd, I'd been working with an agent. I was trying to write a book project. I didn't know if I was going to lose my job as a professor. I didn't know if... People would buy books. Um, I don't know if, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen. Is the economy going to collapse or all businesses going to go out of business? My agent, Tanya McKinnon, very smartly said, I think people are going to watch everything they can watch on Netflix, and then they're going to run out of things to watch on Netflix, and they're going to start reading books and buying more books. 
And that's exactly what happened. Book sales went up. Yeah, it turns out there is not an unlimited amount of things on Netflix. You think there are, yeah. but but you can reach the end of Netflix eventually. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> and you can run out of books that you've already read. So, right. you know, people, are, people kept writing and reading books. And so Tanya actually asked to look at my dissertation, which had a narrative arc to it, but also had very technical parts. And the last chapter was called The Viral Underclass. And that was kind of how I'd ended the book after I'd, I'd written about lots of theoretical things and, and the story of this young man who'd been arrested. I wrote about how I saw activists talking about um, if they reformed HIV laws and left some of them on the books in ways that some people get prosecuted for them and others wouldn't, that was going to create a kind of viral underclass. And I looked more into that phrase and the origins of it, and Tanya and I talked about it and decided that what I should do is use that as an analytic to look at past pandemics, particularly HIV and AIDS, but also to some degree hepatitis and tuberculosis and the 1918 flu uh, pandemic, um, and to use that as an analytic, as a way to think about how pandemics happened, and to use that as a way to explore what we didn't know was going to happen. You know, March 2020, we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. So that was kind of how it it began. and, And Another move from it was, I think, the dissertation and my previous reporting on this had really focused on the ways that HIV criminalization showed a kind of systemic racism and illustrated a kind of racism. And in this project, I started seeing how the same dynamics, of course, apply to racism, and I write about that a lot. But I also saw in Greece with the killing of this uh, HIV-positive Greek person that that was happening outside the context of U.S. race relations. It was happening to white people in Europe, and I saw ways that it was happening in Asia. And I saw how similar dynamics were happening around disability um, here in the United States and around the world. And so that became kind of the move to go from a project that was really about race and HIV to sort of say this illustrates a set of dynamics that can explain how marginalization happens and viruses kind of give us the key to understanding how that happens. Mm, Wow. You know, one thing I love about the book is how generous you are with sharing credit for things. You know, if you get an idea from somewhere, you're not trying to claim it. So, for example, the term the viral underclass, you didn't coin it. You're adapting it and expanding it and everything like that. And you're very open about that. You talk about um, Sarah Shulman and, and, you know, the way that she sort of opened your eyes to how viruses affect the world. The history of the world is the history of viruses, right? And um, you mentioned two books that are big influences on the viral underclass. One is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and the other is The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which, you know, both of which were books that, particularly The Shock Doctrine, I just remember when that came out, just blew my mind. Um, Were there other books you were thinking of as models or, you know, when you're trying to solve the problem of how to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish in a book for a general audience or whatever that you were looking to for inspiration? And and what did you pull from them? Well, yeah, certainly. uh, New Jim Crow opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And one of the things I was riffing on from her book is the way that she also writes about she did not come up with the the term New Jim Crow. It was something that she heard in community and, and she's kind of making a new legal theory or a way for or legal analytic for people to understand these dynamics in society. And so that really appealed to me. And I wanted to similarly credit for a bunch of reasons how I had learned this term from Sean Strube, how I'd first encountered here an activist using it in a different way, and how I was sort of building on it in a third way. And it was really important to me to credit people for a couple of reasons. I feel like when writing for print magazines um, and newspapers, editors are often trying to get rid of that. It is an inline credit. You can usually hyperlink, but there have been, you know, we've seen a couple of them this year, uh, disasters where book authors have credited people in their footnotes or even in line, and then the adaptation ends up taking the credit out, and it looks bad for something the author tried to do. And I thought also this, this is 
deals a bit with um, frustration to have with with journalism. I don't believe in objectivity as something that happens in journalism. I think that we always have some kind of subjectivity. And so I wanted to always let readers know who I'm referencing and if I have a relationship to them. Mm-hmm. Um, not to take credit for the idea, but also to say, like, this is a person I'm in relationship with. And that's because I practice relational journalism. I try to have relationships with sources. I often have relationships with communities of readers that I'm writing about over time. That's certainly been true over the 10, 12 years I've been writing about um, HIV. And they also, like, I think the reader has a right to know that. Um, The shock doctor to Naomi Klein, I was so touched that she agreed to blurb my book, was one of the books that really opened my eyes to kind of how the world works. And I think that Klein also does this really beautiful work that is completely original and brilliant, but not written in academic prose and is very widely accessible while also being very intellectually rigorous. Bell Hooks was a huge influence to me as well. Um, When I first started thinking about going into an an academic track, it was largely because I had read the work of Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like I was coming home, like coming to an intellectual home when I started reading what she wrote. Um, the book Fast Food Nation also had a huge influence on me. I think it came out in 1999 or 2000. And Eric Schlesser wrote this book about how fast food operates in the U.S. and really used that as a prism to understand labor, economics, environment, uh, political, uh, you know, uh, electoral politics, race politics, um, very much through this lens of thinking about fast food. And so, and that was one of the reasons why I, I ended up doing a PhD in American Studies, even though his book is not a is not an academic book either, but I found out the field of American Studies often will do this thing where you're sort of looking at one thing in the U.S. and understanding the dynamics of the U.S. through it, and I really admired the way he did that in that book. It had a big influence on me, and so in some ways I thought about thinking of viruses um, the way that he had thought about fast food as a way to understand lots of things about the United States, but probably the person who influenced me the most, he already said, was Sarah Shulman, who... Um, I first encountered through activism about Palestine when she was involved at the LGBT center and trying to make sure that a a Palestine supporting group did not get thrown out of the center. Um, And her book, Gentrification of the Mind. Great book. Yeah, really fantastic. Uh, Conflict is not abuse. I think these are books that are kind of our modern philosophy that help guide a lot lot of people trying to do ethical work uh, in in politics and in uh, community building. And then also, which came out not too long before mine, Let the Record Show, which is a, a history of ACT UP New York. Um, and the couple of things that I learned from Sarah the most were um, that the story of viruses is the story of the United States. I don't think you can really understand U.S. history without understanding AIDS history. Mm-hmm. And also the way that we work in groups and we work in conflict, that there's always conflict that's happening in, in political growth and, and political advancement and ways to take care of community that we very much have a relationship to each other and a responsibility to one another. Um, and I, and Sarah's written about how she learned that through AIDS organizing and AIDS work, and, and I very much learned that from her. You know, an, another thing I love about the book is I, I feel like it really combines the different sides of you as a person and, and your life journey. And we, while we're speaking relationally, you know, you and I are friends. You know, we've we've well, this is only the second time I think we've been in a room together, weirdly enough. The other was at <laughs> AWP. But, you know, we we are on Twitter a lot and correspond and things like that. But and so I really felt like it's it's you, you know, there's like the journalist side of you, the social scientist side of you, the the memoirist side of you. And I was just wondering about how you make space for those different sides of yourself on the page and when you're deciding kind of which hat to wear. Maybe you just don't distinguish between those things. I don't know. I've had times in my life where I'm very much distinguishing between sort of 
an activist sense or a journalist sense. Mm -hmm. And the way I'll often explain to my students about that is I wrote a, a story many years ago for the Times about um, bad things that were happening in a homeless shelter run by LGBT people for LGBT kids. And I felt very much it was my responsibility as a journalist to write about that once I found out about it, both because my allegiance in that situation is most to the kids. They're the most vulnerable in the situation. But also as a journalist, it's um, to write about things that are unjust and try to find more justice for people. And some activists might not want to do that so much. Some might, um, but some might want to say, let's take care of it out of, you know, yeah. not in the press. But as a journalist, I'm like, that's one of the distinctions between an activist and a journalist there. We, we both care about the community, but sometimes I step out and write about it more critically. Um, in writing this book, I was trying to find less distinction between the different parts of myself. And I feel like professionally, intellectually, through therapy, <laughs> um, you know, I try not to have a sense of bifurcation between the different parts of myself. And a huge influence, actually, I should have said this when you asked me about books, was um, a book called The View from Somewhere by Lewis Raven Wallace, who is a trans uh, journalist. And, and we had met in his moment of crisis. Uh, a person put us in touch with each other. Lewis was the only out radio reporter in the country in 2016 um, when Trump was elected and, and was inaugurated and was working for the radio show Marketplace. And Marketplace had told their staffers, you must blog. And um, Lewis had started a blog, a medium that fewer than 20 people had read, um, but wrote this post saying objectivity is dead and he was okay with it. And it wasn't actually a screaming call for, for being a polemicist, but it was acknowledging that as a trans radio reporter, when he would get sent to North Carolina, he would have to make a decision about what bathroom to use. And that's, you know, that puts you in a political position. But also cis people going in that situation are making a decision to, you know, participate in this sort of mm -hmm. segregated situation. And that is, if we reflect on that critically, that actually makes our work much stronger. And then Lewis got fired immediately from marketplaces, never worked in public media again. Wow. And so my conversations with him and some of the work we've done together really have informed the ways that I want to think about how we can be critically reflective, but bring our whole selves into whatever we do, and that that makes our work richer. Um, and so I wanted to write this book. I, the mix ended up being a different mix than I thought when it began, but I wanted it to be some memoir, some kind of social science research, and journalism reporting uh, as a way to think about viruses and explicitly uh, historically, but also to write about the present situation that was happening with the coronavirus pandemic. And I wanted to bring all of those parts of myself together. And I wanted to do so to, like, as I was saying earlier, both let the audience know who I was talking about, um, but to acknowledge that if I have as many queer people have, you know, um, if I have a relationship with people I'm writing about, that that's, you know, okay, as long as you're talking about it. Viruses happen in very intimate scales of our lives. So much of the, the ways I've benefited from the science and the politics and the culture of uh, queer culture in the 80s and the 90s comes from queer activists and gay activists and ACT UP and news publications and government who like all knew each other and were working very diligently and ethically together to try to stop AIDS from killing people. And right. that and that involved activists, artists, journalists, scientists, you know, working together. Sometimes, you know, people had, had lots of relationships with each other, losing people they loved. And I wanted to reject the idea that that in any way denigrates the quality of the work. Um, sometimes it's because people are explicitly affected by something that they end up spending the most time in the lab or the <laughs> most time on the Hill or as journalists trying to solve what's happening. 
Uh, and I wanted to share some about myself. I ended up sharing more than I had planned um, <laughs> in ways that do make me uncomfortable at times. But I feel like if I'm asking, particularly someone like Michael Johnson, who was incarcerated for most of the time that I reported about him, if I'm asking people to share about the intimate parts of their lives, then I feel like I should be willing to do so as well. Um, but also what I kind of hoped was, particularly with COVID, if I shared about the intimate ways and difficult and vulnerable ways that um, I was affected by the pandemic, that I hoped that that would give people an ability to reflect on their own experiences, knowing that you know a million people died here in the United States mm -hmm. alone. And I think so much news media even more so after the book's been published, is just relentlessly trying to get us to move on, move on, yeah. move on. And so I wanted to be vulnerable about my own processes of mourning and loss in ways that I hoped would give readers some space and ability to be vulnerable within themselves and to experience their grief and loss. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Stephen Thrasher. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, and we hope you are, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Stephen Thrasher. You just mentioned uh, sharing a lot about yourself sometimes, some things that make you <laughs> uncomfortable. You know, I you brilliantly teed up my next question, which had to do with you know, you being present, the first person pronoun being present on the page. You know, I, I know like when I was writing the method, it was like 
I really spent a long time wrestling with where am I in this book, you know? And eventually where I came out was I'm going to be in the introduction and afterward. And then there's going to be enough of a sense of style in the book that, you know, like a subjective human being is writing and telling you this story. But because the story, most of the story takes place before I was even born, and I'm not doing that many first, but you know, it just, it, I needed to get out of the way of it for the most part. Whereas you really did, um, the opposite. You're, you know, you're very present on the page. You're sharing stuff about your own health problems and, and experiences in the American healthcare industry and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, yes. About my balls. About your balls. Yes. Well, okay. Yes. Yes. You're sharing. Yes. You're talking about your balls. I was wondering, and maybe that was one of the parts that you were uncomfortable with. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the process of, of writing stuff about yourself that you still might feel uncomfortable with having out there in the world, you know, even now the book's been out for several months. I've done a thing that multiple editors who, who are good have noted with me. You know, you know something when multiple editors critique something that it's probably you and not just the editor. Right. And so one of them is like, I'll often have some impetus about something that I want to write about, but it feels like too hot or or a little scary to write about. And I'll bury a short reference to it somewhere to the mid to the end of what I'm filing. Um, and a good editor will find that be like, no, move that to the beginning. Um, so the way that that happened the, the most in this book was I had asked, I had a bunch of people read individual chapters because there's so many different things I write about. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a bunch of different people reading chapters kind of for expertise review um, to give me some insight about what they thought about the subject matter. And I'd given my second chapter to Greg Gonzalez, who's an epidemiologist and ACT UP alum, really wanting his insight on act up history and some epidemiological questions. Um, but he found like two paragraphs where I wrote about this friend of mine, Olivier, and was like, this seems like you're putting a lot of heart in it here. Why is this at the end? I really think the chapter should be about this person. And Olivier was a, a friend of mine, a, a person I had kind of a heart love connection with, only also saw a few times in the years we knew each other, but corresponded for about seven years. And I, I knew Greg was right. So I, I, I went back and rewrote that chapter um, really framing it around this person, which also meant I had to show a lot about how much I love this person who was now deceased mm. and how and why we, HIV had kind of intervened in the way that we related to one another. And the hardest thing about that was I had, um, he ended up, he, he died in 2014. Um, and the hardest thing about that was that I had like six, seven years of Facebook messages with him. So I actually went back and read all of them and quoted from them and used them as an archive. And I felt like that was a, it was a hard thing for me to do. I also felt like I had to put a lot of myself in there too. So it wasn't unfairly just on, you know, on this one person to make myself vulnerable, but it was a chance for me to put into practice something that I teach kind of intellectually, which is to use queer methods and to look for archives that you don't find in other places. And oftentimes when we're writing about people who had HIV or who, lived with lives or deaths that were stigmatized or that were marginalized in some way. We're not always looking at traditional archives. We have to look in kind of queer spaces and unusual spaces. Um, so this was an opportunity for me to practice what I preach and to utilize that myself. Um, and that ended up you know, bringing a lot more of myself into it. Um, the other thing that was fairly obvious that I was going to write about once it happened, but I certainly didn't predict it, and I was very heartbroken about it, was that uh, one of my closest editors who'd mentored me, Ward Harkavy at The Village Voice, died of COVID about maybe a month or two after I'd signed the book contract. And he was um, he was a really wonderful guy, very funny. 
uh, an old school alt weekly editor, uh, and actually had edited my first story where I ever wrote about AIDS in, in some way. Um, he wasn't gay, but I think he was uh, in a in a David Sedaris or an anti David Sedaris way. Uh, I would say like there was a lot of queerness to his life. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, had been a member of the disability community. He had a stutter. He was single for most of his life. Um, he had pretty non-normative politics. He had been very close to lots of queer people, uh, gay men who, who died of AIDS. And so I felt kind of a responsibility to him. And, and he didn't have close family, so I was one of a few people who ended up kind of settling his affairs and taking care of his estate, planning his memorial service. Um, and so I ended up writing a lot about that process and how much I had loved him. And and so that was a chance for me to to practice some of the craft things that he had taught me. Um, but also to share with people uh, like what this loss was like in a way that many readers have written to me that they appreciated because they had some similar experiences and felt and appreciated feeling validated in yeah. um, what they'd gone through again in ways that were often encouraged like just to move past and sort of say like that happened a couple years ago move on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have very similar experiences. My wife's uncle died during the first year of COVID, and I mean. We couldn't go see him when he was sick. I mean, he was very sick for a long time, a stroke, you know, everything. But we couldn't go see him when we knew that the end was coming close. We could have, we had one Zoom call with him. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, one thing you're bringing up here that I think is really important is that craft considerations and who we are and our values, they're not some separate thing. They they completely (laughs) overlap, right? It's not like craft is just this, um, left brain thing that exists in some, I don't know, platonic realm. And you're like, ah, the craft is speaking to me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also about who you are and, and what kind of values you have intellectually or, you know, what matters to you actually starts to dictate how you create the work that you create. It seems to me. But now I'm going to ask a question that's much less personal <laughs> than that. I just want to make sure that, you know, our, our listeners hear that, which is just, I want to talk a bit about how the structure and shape of the book came along, because you have these different lenses you're looking at that, of course, all interrelate. But you still did. Did you sort of figure out these are the 12 things I want to talk about? Okay, that's 12 chapters. What goes in the chapter? I'm going to outline it. Or or were you kind of free writing to find your way into it? You know, how did uh, the, the shape of it come about? It happened in like a few different stages. So I had um, I wrote about this case of Michael Johnson, who got prosecuted for HIV, initially got sentenced to 30 years in prison um, and was... He, he was charged, he sort of like, yes. uh, was charged with intentionally, I'm putting this in heavy quotes yeah. because this is not a video podcast, mm-hmm. intentionally infecting people with HIV or not disclosing his status yes. to his sexual Yes, partners. recklessly, was, recklessly. Was, the, was the legal term. Recklessly, that was, yeah, recklessly, recklessly, yes. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of the media made it sound like it was intentional. Nothing was intentional in, in this whole story, I think, from any actor's... And so he was charged with, you know, with recklessly transmitting or exposing other people to HIV. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. It was kind of every disaster of black America in one story. And then eventually, um, in part because of my reporting and, and a lot of work the activists did, he ended up getting released about 25 years early. And he still spent most of his 20s in, in jail, but um, but at least he was not in his almost 60 years old when he when he right. got out. And so that story in itself was a real prism for me. And um, one of my aha moments that I write about in the book that helped me start seeing it in terms of viruses is that story happened right outside of St. Louis in St. Charles County. And then six months later, I got sent to go cover the Ferguson uprising after Mm -hmm. Michael Brown had been killed. And when I asked my 
HIV prevention colleagues that I had worked with on the first story, what I should look for in Ferguson, they told me they had seen, they had just been in that Canfield Green apartment complex because there were new diagnoses of HIV there and that Ferguson had this higher rate of HIV and AIDS. And so I started seeing the ways that these were connected. And for a long time, I was trying to think like, is the story about these two young men named Michael, Michael Johnson and Michael Brown? In some ways it was hard because I have so much more familiarity with Michael Johnson. I've you know, known him and interviewed him now for eight years. Of course, he's still alive. His life gets to have a next act, which has been really beautiful and, and wonderful to see. And so I didn't know if that was the right way to write about that in terms of, of Michael Brown. Um, but I worked with a version of, of thinking of it in that way for a while. And then when COVID came, I realized um, that I was going to be writing about HIV and COVID together. And I started to more seriously think about how to write about Zach Kostopoulos, this person in Greece who had um, who was killed by police, but had been HIV positive and a very out HIV uh, positive activist and queer activist and also working with migrant communities. And then the first person in my outer social circle to die of COVID was Lorena Borjas, who was a she was called the mother of the trans Latinx community here in New York City uh, in Queens and was also died of COVID, HIV positive, had dealt with police violence her whole life, was an immigrant, had been in and out of uh, ICE custody or immigration custody. And so kind of as I was writing this proposal and realized I'm going to be comparing these two pandemics, I started seeing like there are these common themes that I'm seeing between them, ableism, capitalism, you know, transphobia, um, how people have different access to prophylaxis or protection in different ways that creates very different risk. And so I started seeing kind of like eight and then 10, eventually 12. I think my publisher was getting a little concerned when it got up to 12. But I started seeing like these are sort of the vectors through which these things happen. And I can kind of write about themes uh, and people on each one. The hardest craft thing that I think ended up working was how to deal with the story of Michael Johnson, because that was the one that was the biggest, the, the one I was closest to and also kind of the, the biggest guiding me. And so the way I ended up laying out the book, th this I think was after we had um, sold the book to Celadon and Macmillan. And I was starting to work with uh, Jamie Rabe and, and Cecily Van Buren Friedman, my, my wonderful editor. And so what I ultimately thought about was taking Michael's story and, and breaking it into four of those vectors, mm -hmm. um, racism, laying out how he was arrested, the law, the way that law produces a viral underclass in the example of the story of his trial, unequal prophylaxis, uh, when he was incarcerated was when I found out and the CDC announced that one in every two black gay men were projected to become HIV positive in our lifetime. And then the final chapter I called The Myth of White Immunity, uh, around Michael, where he gets out of prison, but I reflect on how most of his accusers were white and that their limits to, to assuming whiteness protects people entirely, which of course it does not. And so craft-wise, we decided to like have each of those, have Michael's story be one that we came back to and mm -hmm. came back to and came back to, um, starting with... Uh, you know, his trial and kind of how I started thinking about these things. And then having, this was my editor's, Cecily's very good call, having the penultimate chapter be this kind of happy story of him getting out of prison and seeing that the person we've been following throughout is getting a new lease on life. Um, but then reminding people in the final chapter, which is uh, called... Um, compound loss where I talk about the ways that collective punishment happens to communities when they lose one of their leaders. There I come back to the story of Lorena Borjas who died and Zach Kostopoulos who died and write about actually Mike Michael's story as glad as I'm, I, I was to have a role in it and as happy as I am to see him out in the world 
is unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, for every person who gets out of prison, there's still a couple million who are still in prison. Um, and so craft-wise, we decided to come back to Lorena and to write about her funeral and sort of what it meant not just for the end of her life and the people close to her, but the cascading effect that had in her community. If you have someone like Lorena who spends their time handing out sterile syringes and condoms they're doing and helping people feel good about themselves, you know, they're, they're doing real work in the community that is both psychologically but also very physically stopping viral transmission. Yeah. You know, anytime they get someone to use a sterile syringe or a condom, same thing with Zach Kostopoulos. And so when they die, that's just allowing more viruses to move through the community. Because I could see even, even though these communities are very strong, they take a big hit when they lose a leader like that. Right. Um, I'm just going to ask like uh, some really basic questions right now. Do do you draft by hand first? Do you draft in a computer first? What programs do you yeah, use? Yeah, I know? love these kinds of questions. Oh, good, yeah, good, no, good. No, I think this is so. Like writing is a very physical thing, right? Yeah, no, because yeah. like when I was starting with my book, because I was trying to discover the voice, I I had very elaborate outlines actually on on this iPad, uh, but then I hand wrote until I figured out what it was supposed hmm. to sound like, and then I started typing it up or whatever. But so like, what yeah. what was your process like of actually drafting it? Yeah. So I'm not like a um, – I don't write out by hand. Sometimes – I remember hearing Ira Glass in one of these New York Magazine or like, what do you – like, how do you organize yeah. your life? I, and I remember hearing him say, no matter the size of the project, it doesn't <laughs> matter what it is, you always have like a handwritten one-page outline. So that's something I will do. Hmm. Like when I'm writing a chapter, I'll – I would have that sort of for each chapter, sort of like an outline by hand of the chapter, but I don't draft sentences by hand usually. I've also learned that if I'm transcribing an interview, when I was younger, I, I did them all myself. Now I can pay somebody to do it. But still what I'll do is, even if it's me conducting the interview and I have paid someone else to transcribe it, I then print out the transcript, play it, and read along with it at the time. Mm. And then I just highlight what I think I might want to use. And that really helps me. I, I worked for the StoryCorps project for a mm -hmm. year. And Learning to be an audio editor really, you know, made me understand how to, like, listen for the phrase that things are going to turn on. Mm -hmm. um, but what has sort of freed my brain and the hack that I've uh, that I've learned and, and not having to just write that down quickly, but actually, like, look and read at the same time as I'm listening to it or as I'm playing it. Um, and so I would play an interview with Alice Wong and then I would listen to and highlight the lines I think I'm going to use and then put those in a document. And then sometimes like literally just take those quotes and start writing around them or like sort of thinking like if ordering those quotes around, like what's the story that's told in this person's quotes? And it could be 10, it could be three, but sort of ordering those out and then kind of writing the scene around those, mm -hmm. letting the quotes first tell the story and then writing in around it. Mm. Um, so that's a hack that that I've used. I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna uh, listen to the. I, I I'll, I'll get over my own disgust at hearing my questions and yeah. I'll listen to the <laughs> interview while I uh, read the transcript. I love that. Um, one and one other thing I'll add to that that might be useful for your students that I found worked really well because I try to bring my students into whatever whatever I'm working on and I particularly with the, with my editor's permission. Um, but when I'm being edited, I will often share the draft of that with my students so oh, they wow. can see the process of me being edited. The 2,000 edits, I think, that were in this manuscript. Um, so my students can see me being edited as I edit them. But one of the, the most wonderful things about um, 
I won't say it's a good thing about the pandemic, but I ended up doing a lot of interviews remotely and in, mm-hmm. in ways that weren't in person. So they were video recorded on Zoom. And I tried doing something where I would give my students the raw interview I had done in a story and having them write an exercise about it without reading what I'd written. And then after they'd all written it, then I would give them my chapter in progress. Mm. And then we would all talk about what choices we made. It was really interesting That's to see so how, generous. That's how often we would. Uh, and again, I would like ask my sources permission yeah. to. Uh, and it would be fascinating to see like how often we had chosen the same lines or, you know, sometimes where we hadn't and, and why we made the different decisions. So, yeah, those are some of the things that affected me. The thing that affected me most in writing this book, though, I must say, going forward was reading the audio book, which was more disgusting than listening to your own voice. After the fact, having to right. listen to it live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you have to do the corrections, right? They send you that yes. thing because I did my own <laughs> audiobook too. And you're like, and then, and you have to say the couple sentences before and then re say the thing because you mispronounce the name or what. It's it's maddening. So that effect, I'm like, I think having done that, I will now write much shorter sentences. That was the my oh. biggest critique reading it aloud was who wrote these long ass mm. sentences, and why did they put so many words in Greek, Spanish, uh, Chinese, <laughs> Korean, uh, and medical language? <laughs> I had to have a friend who speaks Russian uh, say all the Russian words into a recording for me so that I could learn them because I had only ever read them. I had no, and it turns out I had been mispronounced. Other than Chekhov and Stanislavsky, I had mis pronounced everyone. And on that note, uh, Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's been great to talk to you about your process. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Isaac, that was really fascinating. Stephen is legit a great talker. And if I can just insert a quick cross promo here, listeners who are now jonesing for more Stephen Thresher should check out the August episode of Slate's Outward podcast. That episode was called What Viruses Can Teach Us About Our Profoundly Unequal World. His conversation with the host was really fascinating and lovely. But to get to your conversation, I swear I was kind of going through a killing me softly feeling during that interview at various points because I'm working through some of the very questions you talked about with Stephen. For example, about how to credit sources and influences when writing a nonfiction book. My tendency is to want to do a lot of referencing about where the ideas are coming from, but I know all too well that that can get in the way of readability and literary style. And it's also one of the things that differs between journalism and book writing. You can't usually footnote in journalism and you can't hotlink in a book. And so I'm curious, what did you learn about managing citation in the text as you wrote The Method? Well, I decided very early on that a feeling of immediacy in the story was absolutely necessary, particularly when we're in Russia and we're talking about someone <laughs> abstruse acting theory. You know, like yeah. it's a lot for people to take in. And I wanted them to be really swept up in the story. And that requires a kind of you are there feeling. Yeah. And so early on, one of the first lunches I had with my editor once I started working on it, I said, you know, I think one of the rules of this book is that I'm not going to use secondary sources directly. I'm not going to quote secondary mm-hmm. sources. And he agreed with that. So it was really important to me that the book then have a really robust end note section and that everything yeah. be really 
well documented. I, you know, I am terrified of inadvertently plagiarizing something because yeah. I think everyone who does yes. a big nonfiction project is scared of it. Um, and one of the things I asked my fact checker to look out for was that, and we changed phrasing. Um, I caught one little thing between the galley and the finished text that I changed. You know, it's like, this is something yeah. I care about really deeply. Yeah. When people use my work without credit, I get annoyed by it. So, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to do that to other people. Yeah. And I think the way Stephen is doing it in his book is absolutely aesthetically the right decision for that one. And the way that I did it in mine is aesthetically right for the method. But yeah. whew, boy, did that make the endnotes process a beast. So <laughs> the big advice I have is this. Do the endnotes as you go. Every time you finish a draft of a chapter or maybe even a major section of a chapter, just pour yourself a cup of coffee <laughs> or a glass of red wine and take care of the notes for it. You don't want to be in the position of doing the notes after the book is written. And is what you learned when writing your book changed the way you write journalism now that you're back to freelancing? Well, I definitely think I'm much better at research in general. You know, uh -huh. I mean, as you said earlier, the weird annoying thing in journalism is that you there's no citations there's no mm -hmm. footnotes there's no endnotes there's no nothing um you have to keep track of that stuff for fact checkers but the reader doesn't really get to see it so how do you fairly credit people without torquing all the sentences of the piece out of whack is a really serious part of the craft of journalism. Yeah. If it appears online, you get some help out of hyperlinks, right? Yeah. Hyperlinks are really your friend. And I really try to do that as much as possible. But it's also hard when, you know, like I have a piece going up later this week where very little of the research exists online. You yeah. know, most of yeah. it's in books. And yeah. so figuring out where do you put the according to and how do you not just, you know, say that over and over again? It's, it's really tricky. Yeah. yeah. I was nodding along when Stephen mentioned that when multiple good editors make the same point about something you do in your writing, it's probably something you should think about and maybe even consider changing. What's your equivalent of Stephen's dropping a tiny mention of something that really should be the central framing of the piece toward the very end of a story? That's a really interesting question. And I really want to hear yours, but I'll oh. go first. Um, what I would say is that particularly earlier on in my writing career, you know, I was working very regularly with Dan Coyce right here at Slate. And the thing that he would bring up when he was editing me was that I tended to stop right at the moment when I needed to actually go further. And it's because I was nervous about running roughshod over the word count that he had given me and, and Dan in the many pieces we did together was very good about saying like, I don't really care about the word count limit, hand me a big thing and let's carve the best version of it out of that so yeah. that we could see all the possibilities. And so yeah. uh, to give one example, the very first big thing I wrote for him that the, um, is Hamlet fat piece. I ended on something that was sort of like, well, clearly there are interesting implications to Hamlet always being played by skinny actors, even though the character is described as fat in the play. And he was like, well, what what are the implications? You have to tell us what the implications are. And I was like, oh, but I'm at, I'm at 1,500 words already. And so oh, the, the ending of the piece as it exists now is actually what grew out of that note. Ah, that's amazing. Mine, I think... Yeah, confess your bad habits, yes, June. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've got so many, but this is one that it will sound when I begin to share it, oh, well, that's just a style thing. But I think it actually reveals something deeper. So I 
just put so much of the text in parentheses. Um, a piece that I wrote relatively recently for Slate, um, the editor, of, who of course is a friend, wrote back and said, um, I don't know if you've noticed here, but every paragraph ends with a parenthesis and like that just seems weird. And yeah, that's just style. But actually, I think it reveals something about, I don't know exactly what, you know, of am I not really committing to this idea? I'm just trying to pass it off as I don't really want to develop this. This is I'm just saying, you know, just by the way, <laughs> BT dubs. So I think that that's something that I do that uh, it, it's just it's actually about not being willing to take some ideas seriously. I don't know, but uh, that that's one of the things that I repeatedly get pointed out. You know, what's funny about that, June, is that I think the thing both of our ticks have in common is that we're like, nervous about putting our like real feelings about something out there and so we need a good editor or at least needed earlier in our writing career a good editor to kind of like push us off the diving board and into the pool isaac is a non-swimmer that analogy scares me a little bit but i'm gonna let that go <laughs> the year that stephen spent facilitating interviews for the story core project clearly had a big influence on his journalistic style. Um, we do a very specific kind of interview here on Working. Certainly for me, it's pretty different from the kind of conversation that I have with a source. This is a word that I really don't like, but it's at least better than informant. But, you know, when I'm trying <laughs> to get information and hopefully a few short pithy quotes that will express their perspective and personality beautifully... What advice would you share with listeners about conducting information gathering interviews? First of all, the extent to which an interview goes well or doesn't go well is less in your control than you think. <laughs> you know, it's really about the other person. And if they don't want to talk to you, yeah. you're not going to be able to get what you want out of them. Or if they're really a combative person, you know, it's going to be a combative interview. And that, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. It's not an indictment of you. You know, yeah. Yeah. that said, a lot of it is about the affect and attitude on your part as the interviewer. You have to be really present in the room with them or the phone with them or the Zoom or whatever. You have to give your focus. You have to make it clear that you're really listening to them. You have to be warm. You have to be inviting, you know, and you have to prepare. Now, I actually think in the early days of interviewing, I got really caught up in my prep mm. and it would be hard for me to kind of improvise off of it. Yeah. But actually, you know, I do as much prep now as I used to. It's not that mm -hmm, I do less mm -hmm. prep. It's mm -hmm. that the whole point of preparing is that you have kind of terra firma that yeah. you can then depart from and improvise off of. And, and you know, uh, if someone says something interesting, you know, follow that trail or whatever, right? Yeah. I yeah. also think that in your manner and in the early questions you ask – you do have to demonstrate that you can be trusted and that you've done your homework and you know yeah. what the fuck you're talking about, yeah. you yeah. know, or if you don't, if it's very early in the story and they're, you know, the first person you're talking to about it, you go, you're actually the first person I'm talking to about this. And so I may ask some kind of basic questions and I'm sorry about that, but, and then usually once you admit to that, they're like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's cool. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, because we're basically done for this week, but we have one more segment and it's about a unique creative challenge of this time of year, the challenge of gift giving. June, you recently talked to our wonderful and talented co-host Karen Hahn about this, right? Indeed, I did. We talked about our strategies for gift giving, especially when the recipient does creative work. So listeners, we hope you enjoy this special holiday segment brought to you by Best Buy. 
Karen, let's talk about something that is a big part of the holiday season, gifts and gifting. Are you a good gift giver? Are you one of those people who takes pride in finding the perfect item for everyone on your list? I absolutely am. I love giving (laughs) gifts. I start thinking about them a few months before December, to be honest. But the big problem is that once I actually have them in hand, I have a lot of trouble waiting until the holiday season to actually give them to their intended (laughs) recipient. Like, I'm always like, oh, like, can I just give you your Christmas gift early? Like, I just want you to see it because it's so great. Um, What about you, though? Are you a gifting genius? I have to ask before I answer that question. Have you ever had to buy an extra gift because you've given it to Ellie and you're like, oh, man, I yeah. just got to buy something. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I have. <laughs> oh, man, you got to get the timing right. I know. Oh. It's so hard. Oh. So am I a gifting genius? I would just say I have my moments. I mm-hmm. don't have to buy for many people. And I have a sort of repertoire of go-to gifts for several of my regular recipients, like stationery for my partner. And, uh, you know, now I think of it, stationery for my mom. Um, <laughs> a lot of stationery. Tell you what, though, I am absolutely amazing at buying gifts for myself. Mm. I recently made a purchase that was inspired by our co-host, Isaac Butler, who recommended mm. a laser printer for anyone who writes and shares their work. Hmm. I got one and it has really genuinely improved my productivity. I've found that it really helps to have a physical version of my work when I'm revising stuff that I've written or even as I'm collecting my thoughts together to write, you know, a first draft just to make sure I don't miss anything. Mm-hmm. Totally highly recommend Are you much of a self-gifter? Does it count if I would categorize it more as like retail therapy? (laughs) Totally, totally. (laughs) I definitely like buying things for myself, both in terms of things that will be practical for work and also things that I just want, like a set (laughs) of cute stickers or a nice sweater. Um, I will say like we also have a laser printer in our household and also find it very, very useful. Although my partner is much more conscious about like using paper. So like there was one time where we were kind of like marking up a script that we'd worked on and I was like, let's print out two copies and we'll do it. And we printed out one and he was like, let's only do one and then I'll look on my computer and I was like well why are we doing this then but I understand we should save paper Um, I know I know I do feel a bit guilty about that yeah yeah but it is different it 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 feels different I feel more productive when I have it physically yeah that said do you have any other gift ideas especially for people with a creative practice so this is a little bit tough because Mm -hmm. it's hard to make the match but I think that software can be a really powerful aid to creativity. Um, A lot of the kinds of programs that are designed to help people be more productive, uh, writing software or note-taking apps or research tools, they've switched to a subscription model and, you know, the cost of those subs can mount up. Now, I understand why that model is appealing and necessary for indie software developers, But at the same time, we all have limits on how much we're able to cough up for tools that we don't, like, need. But just because we don't need them doesn't mean that they can't be really helpful. So Mm -hmm. I would say, like, if you spot your partner in life or writing or, (laughs) you know, composing, whatever, watching YouTube videos about a particular app or program, like, get them a one-year sub to that. 
mm-hmm. app or program. It probably won't transform their creative process, but it surely won't hurt either. And there's a decent chance that it will at least kind of give them a chance to be excited about going and sitting at their computer to just kind of mess around with the software. And yeah. you know, that can get you in the mood to, you know, do whatever it is that you do. Um, so I have a slightly different question for you, Karen. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for products that kind of get you through holiday stress? Ooh, products is a tough one um, mm. because I think my answer would usually be much more kind of metaphysical. <laughs> I think a big <laughs> thing is to make sure that you have something to look forward to, whether it's mm. a holiday trip or a solo trip after all of your family obligations are taken care of. Um, that said, I think it's also useful, like, this isn't like a product endorsement so much as like a, a little buy yourself a gift endorsement. Like mm. if you've come to the end of something that's really tough, like buy yourself the thing that you've been looking at. Like, why not? No one else is going to buy it for you. Although maybe they will if they're a very <laughs> observant person in your life. Um, but yeah, like don't be afraid to give yourself a little gift if you have the leeway to do it. Like find something that'll brighten up your day, whether it's small or big or material or immaterial, like just having something that'll make you a little happier or be a light at the end of the tunnel will be helpful. Yeah, that's also a great way to change a habit that you want to, you know, reframe is mm-hmm. to, you know, set yourself some rewards that yeah, like incentivizing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I just want to make a plug for kitchen appliances that will do their magic while you're in another room writing or drawing or whatever it is that you Mm -hmm. like to do. I'm thinking of like a slow cooker or a device that, I don't know, maybe it's just popular in the UK, but it's known as a soup maker. Uh, Is that different from like an instant pot or a hot pot? I think basically it's yet another form of slow cooker. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, I think anything like that, that you can kind of set it and almost forget Mm -hmm. it. It gives you time to focus on your creative work, but then supplies you when you're ready to come up for air with something warm and comforting that can fuel you to do more work in your next session. Uh, And also... Before we go, I must recommend books as gifts, especially two of them that are very near and dear to working. Karen's <laughs> book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema, out November 22nd. And of course, Isaac's book, Isaac Butler's book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which came out in February. Both are fantastic. Both will inspire you. Both will put you in a creative mood and make you really happy, which we all need at this time of year. <laughs> Thank you, Karen, for uh, sharing uh, some advice. I already feel so much more relaxed about holiday gift giving. Thank you, June. This has been very fun. And don't forget, shop great deals on gifts now at Best Buy. June, that was a great conversation. And I think that pretty much wraps this week's episode of Working. So why don't you kick off the credits for us? I will. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate.com site. To learn more, just go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Stephen Thrasher and to the producer who cures all our ills, Cameron Drews. 
We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, who will be talking about the work she did adapting her novel Fleischman is in Trouble into an FX Hulu TV series. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.